Hey, everybody. So again, we are keeping on with this year of gratitude. Also, I found the perfect gratitude journal. So if you're on the hunt for a good gratitude journal, just message Aaron and I on the First Bite podcast link and I will send you the hyperlink for it. But my gratitude today is for this podcast review from SJ Crego that calls it a fantastic podcast thoroughly enjoying First Bite as an SLP with interest in the school and early intervention settings. Awesome inclusion of a variety of topics that is so helpful on so many levels. Great mix of engaging information to listen to and learn from as I drive to my next school. SJ Crego, thank you so much for this review. And I truly hope that today's episode talking about neurodiversity and double empathy will really help shape and expand everybody's evidence-based triangle. This is research to practice at its finest, y'all. Okay, enjoy. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson. MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant, who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, everybody, we are continuing our conversation that we like rolled out the beginning of the year with still on neurodiversity because it is paramount that we embrace this within our profession. So if you tuned in to our first episode of the year, we had Dr. Allison Bean on. And in the episode, she was raving about today's guest. So we have none other than Morgan Oates, MA, CCC, SLP, a PhD student at The Ohio State University, which I understand it's very important that I use the word the. I don't understand the why, but I know that this is the societal rule that we follow. So at The Ohio State University. And we had our very first sidebar before we even started talking about cat vomit and what has transpired in the last 24 hours of our lives. So Morgan, welcome to you in Kashmir. And I'm hoping that Kashmir was not the one that partook of your 5 a.m. wake-up call this morning. No, it was not Kashmir. No, it was Fiona, unfortunately. But Fiona as in like Shrek and Fiona? Please tell me it's Shrek and Fiona. It is the same name. She was not named for that character, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, you could have also gone with Fiona Apple and that too would be like... Oh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) So hi, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes. 
Okay, so tell us a little bit about you. Like you're an SLP in Ohio. So how did all of this transpire? Yeah, so when I started undergrad, I was majoring in linguistics. I've always been super fascinated with language and communication. And as I was kind of in my undergrad, realizing that jobs in linguistics are somewhat difficult to come by. And I had a friend who was a speech and hearing science major and she recommended that I check it out. And so I did, and I ended up just absolutely loving it. And throughout my time in the major, decided that that was what I wanted to do and went to grad school to get my master's in speech language pathology. And along the way, just became absolutely fascinated with topics around autism. So I worked clinically for a little while after grad school, got my C's, and then decided to go back for a PhD. And I had already known Allison Bean, my advisor, through the master's program, and we had worked together on some research prior to the PhD. So yeah, so that's where I'm at now. I'm in my third year of the PhD program. So is it a four-year program? There's not a rough or a strict limit, but yeah, generally it's around four years. Nice. Nice. Okay. So did did you do undergrad and grad school at the Ohio State University? I did. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty cool. You're like a triple grad. I I am a triple Buckeye. (laughs) A triple Buckeye. Okay. I got to be honest. I don't really know what a Buckeye is. It's kind of a, a funny mascot to have, but it's a nut that comes from the Buckeye tree in Ohio and it's, it's round and it's brown and it has like a a small circle of a different shade of brown and it kind of looks like the eye of a deer kind of. Okay. A buck eye. Okay. Now I'm with you. (laughs) When you do the Google on a Buckeye, interesting things come up. So folks proceed with caution when you type in a Google. The only thing I had known is that one time I was at a party and somebody brought chocolate buckeyes. Mm, yeah. Like, and I was like, why did they name the school after a chocolate dessert? But I mean, I hadn't heard about a gamecock until we moved to South Carolina. And then because we don't watch I didn't grow up watching like college football or like no, sports. Yeah, neither did I. And where I went to school, my undergrad didn't have a football team, ODU. Now they do. It's actually pretty good. But like JMU, they're known for their powder puff games. So like <laughs> but like we moved here and all of these girls were walking around with I'm a cock on their shirts and their shorts. And I was like, Christian, this is my husband. I'm like, where have you brought me? He's like, they're game cocks. I was like, you're telling me their mascots are rooster. And he was like, yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> Yay. And now we're supposed to say spurs up, I think is what they say. But I, I don't know. I'm not a real, that's their motto, spurs up. And I'm like, okay, we're just going to. I don't do sports, but go team, score a touchdown. <laughs> and move on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So folks, what you, what you guys meant was we're going to transition from sports to cat vomit and now. So we were talking about like how our day started, how's life? Because, you know, we just met right before him. So she was sharing how her day started and I shared that yesterday I was doing home health with the patient and I was there at the patient's house and doing, you know, update with the caregiver. How's this going? How's this strategy been working? And their very large cat came over and started cuddling on me and then made this very weird, very weird noise. And the mom goes, walk away, walk away slowly, walk away like or walk away quickly, get out of the zone. And I was like, what zone? I kid you not. The cat spun on like a top, like around in a circle and proceeded to projectile vomit. And then their dog that looks like Santa's little helper from the Simpsons came over and started cleaning it all while I'm just sitting there with my laptop. And I look at the time on my laptop and this is 8.37 in the morning. And I was like, mommy needs a second cup of coffee today. So does the other mommy. But like, that's kind of how your pre-podcast day started. So how is your day going? <laughs> yep, it sure did. One of my cats woke me up this morning by vomiting on my head. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I hopped in the shower, stripped the sheets off the bed. <laughs> um, this is, yeah. <laughs> only in an SLP's life does this thing happen. Okay. <laughs> 
So on that note, now that we all have our fun cat stories, I'm seeing I love cats. My husband's allergic to them. So like I love cats. But in the podcast we did with Allison, Allison was talking about some research on double empathy. And she was like, one of my students shared this with me. She's like, she's one of my doctoral students. And she was talking about the concept of double empathy. And I had never heard of the research on double empathy before Allison spoke about it. And to be fair, I mean, everybody knows her podcast released like two weeks ago, but like, well, we recorded it like a while back. So I have used your explanation through her that she gave to me to several parents already to explain like kind of what's going on when they're speaking with their little one. So can you talk about double empathy and like what made you interested in researching neurodiversity and all of this? So to kind of start at the beginning, during my master's program, I had a class on autism taught by Dr. Bean. And during that class, we watched, it must have been a conference presentation or something, just a recorded video of somebody talking about autism. And at the end, during that Q&A portion, an audience member asked the presenter, I don't remember who it was, but asked them, why do you think there are more boys than girls with autism? And the, whoever was presenting responded that they thought it was an evolutionary advantage for males to be hyper-focused on hunting and that kind of thing. And I heard that and it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, just like in terms of gender equality and our knowledge of like evolutionary psychology and, you know, why would it not be advantageous for women to be hyper-focused on caregiving or, or whatever? So I was like, there has to be an alternate explanation for this. Like there have to be other people talking about this that have different thoughts. And so I ended up going down this rabbit hole of research, just reading anything I could get my hands on. And I found myself immersed in autistic social media spaces. And so throughout that process, I was learning so much about autism and the way that autistic people view autism differently than the way that clinicians tend to view autism and researchers. And just a lot of it sort of countered what I had been taught about autism previously. So I just went down this absolute rabbit hole and became fascinated with the topic. And so through that, I ended up learning about neurodiversity. So the paradigm of neurodiversity sort of says that like there's infinite variation in the ways that human brains are structured and how they function and that there's no one right or normal method of neurocognitive functioning, that neurodiversity is just like other forms of human diversity, that it can be like a value neutral trait, like eye color. There doesn't have to be any kind of stigma attached to different types of neurocognitive functioning, basically. Wait, that is beautiful. A value neutral trait. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. (laughs) Then sort of going along with that, there is a researcher named Damian Milton who came up with the theory of double empathy in 2012 and sort of posited that people with different neurotypes experience the world in different ways. They have different perspectives. And because of that, when we're communicating, there can be misunderstandings or miscommunications. And In the clinical world, we tend to view that as the definitions of autism being that there are deficits in this, there are impairments in that, and X, Y, and Z. But really, it's according to double empathy, it's not that autistic people are having a hard time understanding non-autistic people. It's that it's mutual. So non-autistic people are also having a difficult time understanding autistic people. So it goes both ways, right? That carries over for like other aspects because I have social anxiety. So like I can hold a conversation with you right now and I'm okay, right? Like a little anxious, a little nervous. Am I going to use the wrong terminology? These are the thoughts that are running 125 miles per hour in my head. But me in group, like 
meeting a large quantity of people, I will literally break out in a cold sweat. And to this day, I still have nervous poos before I go to do a live lecture. That's really oversharing, but like <laughs> today's theme, cat vomit and poo. <laughs> <laughs> it's life. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> but if you're a socially anxious individual, then we know that like you're going to find your other counterpart who is also socially anxious and we're going to do okay together in our small group, intimate conversation. And then when you have to mingle in a large group, it's like, there's too many people. I need to go back to like my little corner. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There has been some empirical evidence to show that when autistic people are talking to one another, they are just as successful as to non-autistic people communicating together. And so it is when you get that mismatch in neurotype that we see those communication breakdowns happening. My brother-in-law is autistic amongst multiple diagnoses, but when he comes downstairs and he wants to script to his shows, Ancient Aliens, I can crash course you on Ancient Aliens. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) But like, it's interesting watching him script this. And then how he talks with our children, and I have neurodiverse children. And so Goose Danger, our 10-year-old, is learning. He knows he can't just talk about what he wants to talk about. So he'll say, what would you like to discuss, mom? And then he steers it back to his topic. But like we start out casting a wider net now as opposed to like – but it's interesting watching these conversations even within our own family unfold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So there's a lot of communication kind of characteristics that autistic people tend to use in communication with one another. So things like that scripting or info dumping, as it's called, and just like giving someone just all of the facts about whatever you're interested in. That's literally my 10-year-old. I'm so sorry. I'm like, if you want to know anything about any Revolutionary War battle, he will down to quantity of soldiers and like, yes, info dumping. I've never heard of that term. And I think that is a beautiful term. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great way of, you know, socially connecting among neurodivergent folks. Okay. I have so many questions. Okay. What about masking for girls? Where does that come into play? And then what about like, is there a difference in how males that are neurodiverse and females that are neurodiverse, like, is there a difference between even how they communicate? Yeah. So camouflaging is such a thing where, so both autistic boys, girls, men, women, non-binary people all engage in, or can to some extent engage in camouflaging of, you know, imitating people around them, trying to sort of blend in and appear more neurotypical, like, and that can be either conscious strategies or it could be unconscious. It can be helpful in certain situations when someone wants to appear neurotypical for say like a a job interview or something high stakes like that. It can also be kind of harmful. And there's been research to show that autistic people who engage in more camouflaging have higher rates of mental illness depression, anxiety, suicidality. Dr. Bean and I have been talking about it as a form of code switching. So being able to alter the way that you communicate in certain contexts when it's necessary or when you want to. When we think about a lot of interventions in speech-language pathology for autistic people, it tends to be encouraging them to camouflage or training them to appear more neurotypical. And that can be really harmful if it's not done in that kind of of way with a lot of agency to be able to decide how you want to interact at certain times. I don't know if I answered your question. You did, but now I have a question to your answer. So is camouflage the appropriate term instead of masking? How should I describe this? Like when I'm writing up my documentation or I'm coaching a caregiver? Either of those, they get used pretty interchangeably. I've also heard compensation occasionally, but yeah, I think camouflaging and masking are are pretty much the same thing. And I ask, I mean, like, I'm literally thinking like last night I was out with the boys and we met Santa last night. So I know this is January, but like we met Santa. Okay. 
So if there's tiny ears in the room, cover their ears because I'm going to let everybody in on a secret. Normally, the mall Santa is not the real Santa. He has a contract with the real Santa because it's too hard to be that many different places simultaneously. It taxes him. And this close to Christmas, we don't need to be taxed to that extent. So we visited the contract Santa at the mall last night. And uh, Goose was so excited, he was spinning. He was spinning and he was living his best life, spinning in his little circle. And I was watching that it was making some of the others around us apprehensive, right? And Goose is not even paying attention. And I was like, hey, buddy, we need to read the room. And I caught myself and I don't know if I am empowering him or if I am asking him to camouflage mask or compensate. But I was like, buddy, one, I was really worried he was going to knock over the mom next to him who had a newborn. Like, this is just not safe. Stim away, dude. But like, don't take out the newborn. Oh my God. She had a giant bow. It was like the biggest bow on this little face that was like, her face is too small for the bow, but like, whatever. But like, I felt like in my heart, I was like, I was so torn with what I was asking him to do because I want him to be his muchness but not at the expense of him getting his feelings hurt or actually causing physical injury. As a clinician, that's hard, but also as a mom, it's hard and it's okay to say it's hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your instincts are on point of like you want him to to be able to stim and be his authentic self. Even with that, there are like you can almost think of it as conflicting access needs. Like he needs the accessibility of being able to stem and he was so excited. I was like, baby, let's play rock, paper, scissors. So we were out there playing rock, paper, scissors, but like he needed the input because he's meeting contract Santa. This is a big freaking deal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And other people have their safety needs as well that they need to be able to to stand stably on their two feet and not be knocked over. (laughs) Exactly. That's also valid. Also valid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, One day my children are going to listen to these episodes and be like, mom, you did not say I was doing that. Be like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. We're honest. (laughs) Next question. What about our autistic adolescents? Being a teenager is cruel. Being a teenager and trying to navigate teenagers, and then you add in hormones and pimples, which is like a whole nother thing because I am turning 40 in a very skinny minute. I have this much gray hair, Botox for my wrinkles, and I still break out like a teenage girl. Like my body's got to pick a struggle. Like you can only do one of the three and not three concurrent, but like, nah, we're an overachiever on our end. But how do we as clinicians coach language and social skills for our autistic teenagers. And then what about our AAC users? I have a lot of questions. I'm so excited that you're here because I know these are things that like you like to research about. So like impart on us the wisdom. Part of the way that we can be like neurodiversity affirming in addressing those things is through educating other people. So teachers, other clinicians, family members, other classmates, and kind of making neurodiversity just more well-known in general so that our autistic adolescents don't necessarily feel that they need to mask quite as much or camouflage quite as much, that they can be themselves in those situations and be accepted within those contexts. I do think that it can be useful to provide education for those high stakes moments where someone wants to mask and wants to appear more neurotypical for a job interview or something along those lines. Having sort of a a toolbox of skills to rely on can provide access to those situations. I think we just don't want to fall into the trap of, you know, requiring that they present that way all the time. Overshare moment. My husband has also got social anxiety, but I'm the butterfly between the two of us. He's an engineer and also neurodiverse, bless his heart. And I told him, I was like, baby, I don't know how you ever made it before me. And he was like, oh no, I know how to like pull it together to get the job done. (laughs) I was like, Christian. 
Andrew Dawson. <laughs> He's going to kill me when he hears that. But, like, he can. He knows how to, like, turn it on. And then he retreats back into his little bubble of, like, you know, I've socialed, I've interacted, and peace. But, like, he navigated that. And I'm like, you know... If the Mr. Dawson can navigate that, then I have hopes for the Goose Danger. So the oldest's real name is not Goose Danger, but that's what we've called him forever. And then the little one's Boo Bear Extreme. And that one, he is extreme. He is. <sighs> God knew what he was doing, giving him to me second. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then for those listening, do we present it? I mean, and I know this is like case specific and it probably is dependent upon the patient, but do we talk to the caregiver and the patients about, one, do I call them patients? Because patients implies that there is a, a deficit or a disorder, right? Like I was raised, not raised, but I was taught that there are my patients, right? So I've always used that term, but now as we're embracing terminology from autistic individuals, as they're coming back to us now that they're older and communicating, this hurts, this is harmful. Like I even down to like using the word patient makes me feel nervous. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. I don't know that I've heard anyone speaking specifically about the word patients, but maybe a more neutral term could be clients. Or, you know, depending on your work setting, maybe you have students. Yeah, maybe clients. Okay. That in and of itself is a shift because, sorry, we literally just had a tiny earthquake. <laughs> Go to you. I was like, the dogs are all looking at me. Yay, for a plot line. Yeah, no, we're okay. This is normal. <laughs> okay, so the earth is literally moving. We should move away from the word patience and be more- <laughs> neutral. Okay. So clients. All right. So we'll start adding this into our lexicon because that's appropriate. But like, how do we bring up the conversation with our autistic clients and their caregivers that they may need these code switching tools? Do we present it as such or do we just start treating? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think because a lot of the therapy and intervention world is kind of reliant on that medical pathologizing kind of model, I think clients and families coming in are going to be kind of used to that. So I think the shift is really about um, coming in and not not being um, deficit focused in the way that we talk about things and not saying like, you know, this is um, an area that you struggle in that we're going to try and fix or any of those kinds of negative connotations, but rather, um, you know, for bringing up those kind of situations where you know, maybe it would be useful to have this skill in your back pocket um, or, you know, for something like, like making eye contact or whatever, where not making eye contact is not going to harm anybody. It's no big deal. It's fine. But, you know, if that is something that is going to be expected, um, you know, telling somebody like, you know, if you need to, to perform that aspect of neurotypical interactions, you know, cheat and look at the bridge of someone's nose, like those kinds of things, um, where it's not obligatory, but it's kind of, if you find yourself feeling like you want to, to do that, um, in order to get by in a situation or get what you need out of a situation, um, here's how to do that. I find myself telling the boys that, and I'm like, the way I tell my own children, because the the little ones that I serve are little itty bitty. So like I get them NICU to like maybe five or six, right? Um, and so the way I explain it to my sons, I'm like, this is a social norm that we just choose to adhere to. And, um, you know, as a society. And um, every once in a while, they'll be like, but why? And I'm like, ah, it's a great question. It's kind of a stupid rule, but like it's the current rule right now. And 
because I'm, I'm honestly, I'm very candid with our children. Like we're very, very honest. And, um, and I have had students, neurotypical students struggle with some of these like social norms, um, because they come from different cultures. And I had one in particular who came from, um, her family came from overseas from, um, Southeast India and, the way she was like, I was taught not to make eye contact and to actually look down when I'm speaking to an elder because this is, it's disrespectful for me as a female to make eye contact and then also add in the layers of like the caste system, case system. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that word, but like that's another added layer. And and the way she described it, I was like, I, one, didn't know that the, that was a societal norm. I mean, I know ours, but I'm not, I, I can't possibly know all of them. Right. So I had to seek to understand. And then as her clinic coordinator, we troubleshooted through how do we create tools in your toolbox for those social circumstances while still being culturally respective of your experiences. And that has nothing to do with even neurodiversity. That's just like a whole cultural conversation. But, um, yeah. Yeah. And that kind of just shows that, you know, all of these social norms, um, whether it's along neurotype lines or culturally, um, you know, they are norms, but they're kind of arbitrary. Like things are different for different people and that's okay. As, as my grandma says, it takes all kinds. <laughs> I always thought that was the older I get, the more wisdom I hear in those words. And I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. And it brings to mind another example um, that I was, I've been working with some SLPs who are autistic. Um, and uh, I, I was talking about that project with someone recently and they said, but, but what about when I have a, a graduate clinician who's autistic and like they're going on their external clinical placement um, in a medical facility and we need them to be you know socially appropriately deferential to a physician like how do we accommodate that like we need like that's an expected social behavior in that setting um so yeah so I think like that kind of thing is another sort of example of, you know, I'm just saying I'm an opinionated, strong-willed Southern white female. And when I get a stiff older white male physician telling me their opinion that's based in the fifties research, I, I too struggle with the appropriate social norm. Completely. (laughs) (laughs) Completely. (laughs) Y'all guys could not see the beautiful hand gestures that I just like. Yeah. Um, yes, that is. Oh God. Yeah. So yeah, that's a so great like, question. <laughs> so I think there, like, the onus is kind of on the the program and the clinical preceptors to advocate for their neurodiverse students and say, you know, um, there are different um, styles of interaction, styles of communication. And like, that's fine. Um, and perhaps if so, so just going back to the double empathy, like that the two parties can can both come part way in managing that communication breakdown. That it doesn't have to be just on the autistic person to change their mode of interaction. Okay, so. That makes me think of the variety of in-services that we should be doing. So once upon a time, I was a dewy-eyed young clinical fellow, right? Like it was a long, long time ago. But um, I walked in on a nursing student um, feeding my patient who had had a hemorrhagic left hemisphere um, CVA. I mean, like the the scans were not great. Like we were heading palliative hospice care. And um, I walked in and um, she was feeding the patient thin soup lying down. And um, 
I politely jumped into Ashley and I said, oh, honey, that's probably not going to work. And I shouldn't call people honey, but like, you know, this is how I was raised. So I start setting the patient up and like, you know, cleaning him up because now we have soup all over our beard and like our chest and the whole nine yards and like whacking on his chest trying to get, you know, because you can hear it like, <sighs> and um, yeah, not a great situation. So my immediate reaction was one patient safety right here in the now in the hospital. And second, I turned around and I reached out to the um, nursing school, like the preceptor was there. Hey, can we, can I come do an in-service on like aspiration precautions? So I went there and that progressed to, Hey, we really should be doing aspiration precaution educations on um, like for all of our nursing staff as part of their new higher orientation. So like we started setting that up. But in today's world, you were right when you said, like, we need to be doing education to, like, teachers. But, like, this should be – if we're truly going to have accessibility for all, we should, as a profession, start doing in-services into different settings and part of, like, training. Like, this is not – this is not just a – um, high school dating situation or entering the workforce. This is going to be, this is a lifelong conversation that, uh, yeah. So when we're thinking of like equity and inclusion and those conversations and, um, diversity and workforce trainings, like this is, this to me should be embedded in there. Like how do we speak to all equally? And it is on us as it is on neurotypical populations to do the partial meeting. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And uh, so I was at ASHA a couple weeks ago and um, I've, I've noticed that there is a bigger focus on neurodiversity than there has been in the past in terms of the sessions that were offered and the speakers and whatnot. Um, so I think that's encouraging um, but yeah, I think there's still definitely like a long way to go in terms of, um, really just bringing awareness to neurodiversity and to double empathy. Um, and, and especially because, you know, a lot of clinical SLPs don't have access to a lot of published research, the, the journals, the research journals that most SLPs have access to are ASHA journals. Um, and you know, the, the practice portal on the ASHA website and that kind of thing. Um, and so there needs to be a lot of the, a lot of the work on autism and neurodiversity and double empathy that kind of takes the perspective that I'm talking about doesn't appear in those venues which is why we podcast to yeah. expedite research to practice, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So, so yeah. So I think if as a profession that is looking to you know grow and diversify um, in lots of directions, but including in terms of neurodiversity, um, there needs to be a, a bigger emphasis on making that information accessible to everyone in the profession not just those who are able to go to the convention. Because that easily sets you back a thousand dollars. Oh yeah. I'm like, by the time I cover hotel registration and food for a week, like that's there's um, Merry Christmas um, to Pack Dawson. We did that. Um, uh, okay. So then I have a question. Where are, what are you specifically researching? Like where, where are your interests and talk to me about that. Yeah, so um, I am, so when I answer the question, I have kind of a couple of different strands. So um, I have just worked on a project um, looking at the experiences of autistic SLPs. Um, so that was a, a qualitative study uh, where I interviewed um, my autistic SLP participants just to hear about their perspectives on um, themselves as communication experts, but who 
you know, according to clinical definitions of autism and, you know, those more stigmatizing definitions of autism shouldn't, quote unquote, be considered to be communication experts. And so kind of looking at that juxtaposition and um, what their experiences have been like in their careers, um, which largely a lot of them have uh, said that they are not comfortable disclosing their autistic identity in the workplace, um, that they, they don't, they don't feel safe being their authentic selves in the workplace. Um, which again points to, you know, the field needs to become more embracing of, of neurodiversity. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's one thing that I've been working on. Um, I'm also looking at, um, kind of expanding the, double empathy and communication work. So um, looking at pairs of individuals who either are both autistic, both non-autistic, or one's autistic, one's non-autistic, um, and asking them to complete a task together and seeing um, whether the the matched neurotype pairs um, perform better on the task, um, and as well as uh, looking at their rapport ratings. So if it uh, goes in line with previous work in that vein, we expect to see that when we have the mismatch in neurotype, that's when the communication breakdown would happen. Um, are they speaking, not uh, the autistic individuals, are they speaking or are they non-speaking or do they have access to devices? I'm just wondering with respect to your research. Yeah, um, so we're open to any modality, um, but so far in terms of the recruitment, we've gotten speaking autistic participants. That is really cool research. Thanks. <laughs> what is the task? So it's um, one person has shown uh, an image um, of like some shapes and stuff, and they it's only shown to one of and that participant is meant to give instructions to the other about how to replicate that drawing. So giving instructions, you know, draw this in this color, in this size over here. And um, basically at the end, we uh, can tell, you know, how accurate was the, the new drawing as compared to the original drawing. Cause I'm, I don't know why, but the first thing that came to my mind was putting a puzzle together and like, because that's my version of torture. Um, I, I love doing puzzles, but like my children want to help do the puzzle, but I don't want, I don't want assistance. I want to just be in my own little sphere of joy with a lovely glass of red wine, dry, no sweet. And, um, and, and puzzle away. And then people come over and they like touch it or they divide my piles up. And I get like, I get like murder mad. And that is not an appropriate reaction for like working on a puzzle, but like, don't touch my puzzle pieces. <laughs> so, like, that's, I was just like, Oh, I hope they don't use puzzles. Okay. All right. So what, what else are you researching? Are you doing additional research aside from these? Cause this is a lot. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm working on right now. Um, I also, I'm interested in um, the intersections of gender and autism and language. So um, thinking about how autistic individuals of different genders use language in different ways. Okay, please explain this. It, it partially goes along with the camouflaging that we were talking about in terms of, um, you know, imitating or trying to blend in in terms of um, the ways that people use language. Um, but there's there's also a lot of research to show in neurotypical people, at least, that girls and women tend to have an advantage in their linguistic skills as compared to boys and men. Um, and so... <laughs> Sorry, I just heard... Um my littlest one, he's like, well, his best friend is Alice. And he was like, well, Alice was really struggling in math. 
So I kind of helped her because she explained why she needed help. I was like, that's called cheating. You can't do that. (laughs) But like, case in point, eight-year-old female convinced eight-year-old boy. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, girls do have an advantage. Okay, I don't know the data, but like I have seen it in action. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So I was was curious to know, like, does that – does that pattern hold true in autistic people as well? And um, so I, Allison and I did sort of a scoping review of the literature to look at um, gender differences in autism as it relates to like syntax and semantics and narrative language and all of that. And um, it, yeah, it, it turns out it looks like autistic girls do uh, tend to outperform autistic boys in terms of those language skills. And in some cases, they even outperform the non-autistic boys so that there's a a gender advantage above and beyond the neurotype uh, differences in terms of language, um, which is fascinating. (laughs) Okay, now you're making me think about my barista. Okay. Yes. Tell me more. Um, okay, so my barista, um, uh, her name's Caitlin, and transitioning or different identity, I don't have the full story, but um, Caitlin's eyeshadow is on point. Um, and that's actually how her and I got to talking because, like, I always go to that, like, particular, like, cafe because it's, like, near my children's school. Um, but um, her ability to just win patients over, not patients, like, um, coffee customers like when we come through like they can be super stressed out but like she can even when they're completely out of like a particular type of the pumps the things you put into the coffee like she just you can see them getting all bristly and puffy and she just like eases them just like it's just so cool to watch and I mean like in my head I'm like I don't have those social skills but like, it's just, hmm, I need to introduce you to her. (laughs) (laughs) But yes. Okay. Oh, this is fascinating. Okay. So how about for those of us that are in the world of peds, how do we, how do we support, um, neurodiversity affirming terminology for our autistic speakers and non-speakers like like if they have an AAC device and they want to work on like like we're we're taught we're supposed to work on social skills we're taught we're supposed to like embrace this but I mean I'm thinking like even down to like I it makes me wonder even like down to the programming of the device when we're for initially setting up, like having he, she, but also adding the word they in there, you know, and just advice, tips, recommendations. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that there is, um, I don't know if, you, if you're aware of this, but there's a huge overlap between the autistic community and the LGBTQ community. Um, So, uh, and that is another thing that has not, um, hasn't really become central in the autism research literature at this point, um, at least in terms of language and communication. But yeah, I think um, giving those vocabulary choices and um, just allowing for those opportunities is really important. Um, I remember I was in an IEP meeting once and um, there was talk of this, this high school autistic girl, um, you know, potentially uh, having an interest in other girls and um, the, the parent and um, someone else in the room just dismissed that as a possibility because, you know, how she couldn't possibly know what she wants. Like, t- 
tying that to, to her being autistic. And um, that's just absolutely not the case, right? So, um, yeah, and I think, so being aware that uh, those identities can and, and do frequently overlap um, and allowing space for that possibility is huge. So I grew up very, very um, um, old school, raised in the South. You use yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. And I was raised that if I don't use those terms, it's disrespectful. If I don't say Merry Christmas, it's disrespectful. So like coming from how I was raised to making a huge shift to being culturally sensitive, right? To neurodiverse populations, individuals of um, differing faiths, individuals of of, um, differing backgrounds and colors and sexual orientation and identity. Like that's down to, instead of saying, yes, ma'am, it's just, yes, thank you. And I just follow it with a thank you because I still feel compelled to follow it with a ma'am or a sir, but like, I know, but I don't know how they identify. I don't know. Um, and, and it's interesting to watch the boys as we're raising our children who are neurodiverse, how we like shift that in, um, in parenting skills such that we're still adhering to the grand's request that they have well-mannered grandchildren but we have well-mannered grandchildren that are modern day respect. Is that a thing? I think that's a thing. If it's not a thing, we're making that a thing. But um, as I'm sitting here in all black wearing my mom necklace. um, Yeah. Yeah, That's, I like that shift to, to yes. Thank you. I would, I was sitting here trying to think of alternatives and that's difficult. So I think that, you are handling that pretty gracefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we it took several beautiful flops to get there. <laughs> like that I will spare everybody with, but um yes, thank you. Seem to be like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh, out of mouths of babes, the truth shall fall. <laughs> so like I won't tell you what they repeat when I'm driving because that that is just edit central, but like um I mommy has murder mad road rage as well. So like, you know, that's that's fun. But um okay. We have only like six minutes left. What have we not covered that you want pediatric clinicians to to cover? Good Lord, this went by so bloody quick. It really did. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm pulling up our notes. I'm like, what did I not cover in the notes? <laughs> I guess. So here's another um, tidbit about um, autistic communication. Um, and the way that autistic people tend to interact with each other. Um, so this came out of a study that looked at, um, I think it, it was adolescents and adults in this sort of community setting. They're hanging out, playing video games, that kind of thing. Um, and the researchers were just kind of observing the interactions and the communication. And they noticed that some of the um, characteristics of the way that the group was interacting um, included what they said was a, a generous assumption of common ground. So somebody would, you know, make a, a reference to some pop culture thing, um, another video game or a movie or, or something. Um, they would make a reference, they'd make jokes and, um, just assuming that the other person that they were interacting with would understand the reference. There was no like, Hey, do you, do you know this piece of media or whatever, or explaining it after the fact or anything like that? It was just assuming that we're all on the same page. Um, and when that worked out, when the common ground was there, there was just instant rapport. Like they were solid. Um, when there wasn't, there was potential for that to be disrupting, right? For someone to be like, I don't know what's going on. This is a communication breakdown. But instead, um, 
another thing they observed was what they called a low demand for coordination. So um, that there wasn't a huge need to, um, to know exactly what the other person was talking about. There could be a reference that was made that someone else didn't get, and that was fine. It didn't cause disruption, and they moved on without, without any report issues. Yeah, but for a neurotypical person, that would probably be like, that would drive me crazy because I would want to know what it is they are talking about. Yes. But so those, those kind of features in the communication are just, um, just some examples of the ways that, you know, there, there are these different styles of communicating and interacting. And it, it works really nicely when you have two autistic people communicating with that generous assumption of common ground and a low demand for coordination. Um, and the, the research on those kinds of features is, is very early. Um, and so I'm curious to learn more about um, those, those kinds of differences that may exist and really describing autistic communication in um, in that kind of value neutral, even positive way of saying like, these are ways that people communicate and it's a, a difference and not like an impairment in the slightest. Value neutral, low demand, low demand for coordination. Nation and common ground. Common ground assumptions. It was a generous assumption of common ground. Generous assumption of common ground. This is profound. I have, yeah, what y'all can't see is me writing down notes. This is, but that's a game changer for how we think about having to teach pragmatics. Right, exactly. Because it's almost like a, 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 another system of pragmatic communication that yes. works for people of different neurotypes. Isn't it beautiful what we don't know? Yes. Yes. That's just like, if you had told me when I woke up this morning, I would be learning two amazing turn of phrases. Like I would have been like, okay, cool. But what are they? Right. But I mean, but that is, that's shifting, that fundamentally shifts. Also, in hindsight, it explains a lot of things, <laughs> like at least in our household. <laughs> oh, my children, I love you so much. You're perfect exactly as you are. Oh. Okay. What else? What else do you, what do you, what do you have to close on? Give us, what do you wish that we knew? Or what do you wish that you knew 10 years ago? Well, 10 years ago, you were a baby. So like, <laughs> um, hmm. yeah, I mean, I think starting my, starting my, like the clinical aspects of my career, I wish I would have known, um, these things that like, first of all, that, that teaching neurotypical social skills, like asking our autistic clients and students to conform to neurotypicality is one, not necessary because um, their social communication is different and not disordered. Um, and two, that, you know, asking people to conform to neurotypicality is actively harmful um, both of those things I wish I had known, um, going into clinical practice. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, takeaways are that it just, all of the ways that autistic communication, um, is different and valid and, um, successful and 
it's not, it shouldn't be a burden on autistic people to bridge the gap with non-autistic people um, in order to, to repair communication breakdowns. So much yes. And then I immediately go to what can we do to support in the greater community? which makes me want to do in services with like the pediatricians associations and like branch outside of the speech pathology world. Like these are, these are call for papers that should be submitted to like the American Academy of Pediatrics. These are call for papers that should go to um, the teachers associations. And um, y'all, when I say call for papers, call for papers are when an association holds a convention, they open their call for papers. It's for like professional presentations to submit, but it's not actually a paper that you're submitting. It's a, um, it's a presentation, but you have like your learning objectives, your outcomes, your, you know, the, essentially the CEU requirements like are, is what you're presenting currently relevant and not, um, antiquated methodology, but what you're researching and what you're talking on, Megan, Morgan is just, it is current. It is relevant and we need it out there yeah yeah this is okay so when are you gonna publish (laughs) um let's see so I have two papers right now that I am um I'm, I'm submitting them this month so hopefully they get reviewed favorably um and then the experiment that I'm recruiting for right now with the, the task of the two people um, giving instructions, um, we're hopefully going to finish collecting data for that in the spring. Um, so getting that written up a little later in the year. And then all of next year, I'll be working on my dissertation. So, Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm I'm taking you. I like regulated for you. Did you see me take that big deep I breath? I did. <laughs> I appreciate that. Like, okay, you can do this. I'm not sending you good juju through the universe. Thank you. Um, okay, so then on that note, um, when you're done and they're out and you've on the other side of your dissertation, will you please come back and share? That would be absolutely phenomenal because we can use this as a platform to expedite the research to the practice. Um, and then I always flip it. It goes back from practice back to research, right? Like, cause that's, that's how our world works. It's folks, if you're listening, it's not just every researcher that we have had on here has talked about, like, I'm giving this information, but feed it back, right? Like this is, how do we, how do we do this when like myself, I'm working in a double wide in off a dirt road in the middle of nowheresville, South Carolina or when I am serving my inner city population, like this is, this is full circle. Right. But, um, oh, this is lovely. I am so excited to see where your research and your career takes you. Yes. Okay. This is wonderful. All right. Um, Morgan, if somebody has a question for you, how can they reach you? Um, they're welcome to email me. Um, my email is, Oates, my last name, it's O-A-T-E-S dot six five at OSU dot edu. And folks, that is the Ohio State University. Yes, it is. Vomit or yes. poo jokes involved. Ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> Morgan, thank you so very much for coming on. Um, everybody, you know, we love it when you um, catch us on First Bite Podcast on Instagram and um, hit us up with reviews on um, Apple Podcast. And um, thank you for uh, taking us on the next journey in neurodiversity care. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org 
feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Thank you.